Well, I'm excited as we all gather together as God's family today, those in this house, those at your house, we invite the Spirit of God to meet you right at the point of your need. And our need today is to celebrate Family Worship Day. We're so happy to have all of our young people with us today. And then also to welcome those who joined in the water of baptism yesterday on the beautiful beach down in Key Biscayne. If you're part of that group, we're so thankful that you're here today and your family was here today. And then um, our hearts are also going out to those in Maui who are homeless today because of that fire. And you know we have a tragedy relief effort that we participate in, Disaster Relief Fund. And um, as you desire to give toward that end, we can assure you that those funds will go to help those people in need. And then the final thing that I wanted to say is there is nothing too hard for God. So no matter what you brought in with you today, our God is great, our God is good. He can meet you at your point of need, and he can lift you, and this is our prayer today. Now, speaking of that, for me, today's message falls into the category of epic rivalries. This is like history's greatest showdowns. This is like boxing heavyweight champion of the world stuff, you know, Muhammad Ali, Joe Frazier, that type of thing, or World Cup soccer. I mean, we're going all the way to Argentina versus Brazil, if anybody knows what I'm talking about there. Or college football, epic rivalry, UM, represent, anybody? Okay, how about FSU? Oh, is is there another university in there somewhere? Like, oh, Gators, any Gators? Yeah, see, I'm talking epic rivalry here. This is like epic showdown. David and Goliath, that's kind of stuff we're talking about. Or Hitler and Churchill, or Clash of the Titans. This is Battle of the God stuff, Clash of the Titans, like in Greek mythology, Zeus and Poseidon and uh, Hades, the gods of Greek mythology. By the way, did you know that ancient Egypt also had their pantheons pantheon of the gods, their collection. They were a polytheistic culture, which means they had many, many gods. They worshiped many gods. And when the one true and living God, Elohim, introduces himself to Moses as Yahweh, the covenant-making God, redeemer God of Israel, he says he's coming to draw his people out of their slavery in Egypt and draw them into the land of promise, we're introduced to an epic rivalry. Not Moses versus Pharaoh. This is Yahweh versus the gods of Egypt. That's the context of the story where we are today. Now, you may be wondering, okay, this is battle of the gods territory. So, so what? So what? What does that have to do with you in your life as you face the challenges today? Well, I believe that answering that question is the reason why God has this story in the Bible as God's Word, even on our Family Worship Sunday, to help us understand how its truth impacts our lives today. And I hope this message will help you see that, and I hope that it will help us see the deep connection between that day and our day, and the difference that The God of the scriptures, the God of the Hebrew revelation can 
can show us between people then being held captive by the gods of their culture and then in turn holding others captive as those find their way into their culture and enslave others. You know the story is the Egyptians held the Hebrews as slaves and now Moses is being sent by God to tell Pharaoh four words. Do you remember them? Let my people go. Would you say that with me? Let my people go. And here's a God, in other words, who wants people free, and he is a God who responds when people are abused, who cares, and who takes action. When he sees bullying taking place against a people or the oppressed being oppressed even more, here's a God who acts to get them free. This is the story. And so far in the story, God has acted to draw out a deliverer. Little baby Moses drawn out of the River Nile, the waters of death, where every Hebrew baby boy, young men, boys, you're here today, if you had been born then, you would have been at risk for this edict that every baby Hebrew boy be either killed at birth or thrown into the River Nile. Well, he was drawn out of the river and then grew up as the daughter of Pharaoh, I mean, as the son of Pharaoh's daughter in the uh, palace of the Pharaoh, and then as a grown man, took the law into his own hands, tried to right what he thought was wrong, and wound up killing a man, and then running as a fugitive. And then hiding his true identity as a shepherd in the Midian, until he was drawn out of his hiding place, out of his camo, by a divine encounter, fire in a bush that doesn't burn up. I will bring people out. This is God speaking. So God had been, Moses had been called and now consecrated, and God is now commissioning him, saying, I will bring the people out from the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will bring them into the land I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that was 700 years before and now the time has come. I mean, the showdown has begun. In Exodus chapter 7, verses, or 7 through 17, those 10 chapters, tells the story. And it's a story of 10 plagues. Now, plagues is simply a word that means bad things that happen to lots of people at the same time. 10 plagues as God strikes the Egyptian gods. And he tells Moses this, verse Four in chapter 7, I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with my mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my people. So Moses goes to Pharaoh. Aaron performs a sign. Aaron is Moses' brother. He's got the staff the Lord gave him, and Aaron performs a sign with that staff, turns it into a snake. The sorcerers of Egypt do the same thing. They got all these snakes crawling around, and Aaron's snake swallows up all of the snakes that the magic of the pagan sorcerers had conjured up, and yet Pharaoh's heart became hard. Would you say hard? Hard. And he wouldn't listen to him. And then the Lord tells Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding, and he refuses to let my people go. So tomorrow morning, I want you to go down to the river of the Nile, and I want you to tell him this, the Lord God of the Hebrews sent me to say to you, what are those four words? 
let my people go. And the God of the Hebrews sent me so that they may worship me. Until now you've not listened. But by this you will know that I am the Lord, and the river Nile, the water of the Nile, will be changed to what? Yeah, blood. Wow, what is that? Ew, right? And so began the series of ten plagues, bad things that happened to a lot of people at the same time. And then, so what I want to do, rather than... um, For time's sake, I just want to list the plagues quickly, and then we'll stop and talk about them in just a moment. But here's the first one. The Nile turning into blood. Ooh. Second one, frogs everywhere. I mean, they were in the ovens. They were in the kneading troughs. They were in their beds. They were in their houses. Frogs everywhere. Number three, gnats. Now, some translators say this word means lice. Ah, Lice, bugs, creepy, crawly, everywhere that you go. And the sorcerers can't reproduce that sign, by the way. And they tell, they tell Pharaoh, this is the work of God. This is no trick. But his heart got what? Hard. Hard. And he wouldn't listen, just as the Lord had said. Okay, number four, a mystery bug. A mystery bug. Some translators say these were flies, but what it really, they, scholars don't know what this bug is except that they were flying insects that are now swarming everywhere that people are, and they're trying to beat off these bugs, you know. Somebody uh, said Moses bugged and bugged Pharaoh to let his people go. He used real bugs. <laughs> Number five, all the Egyptian livestock dies but none of Israel's. They even get sick. And then horrible boils start showing up on their bodies. They break out on the Egyptians. And then hailstorms pommel and and pelt everything unprotected from the weather and then, and kill everything, and then locusts, big old grasshoppers, swarm through and start eating everything that was left after the hail And then number nine, darkness covers the land for three days so that nobody can move. And then number 10, the death of all of the firstborns in Egypt. Bad things happening to a lot of people. And and, uh, even the son of Pharaoh. But Israel is spared. Why? Do you know why? you know what the story says? It says because they, God told them that if they would take a lamb without spot or blemish or defect, and then they would offer that lamb as a sacrifice and put its blood on the doorposts and the mantle of the door of their house, then they would be spared. The death angel would pass over that house. You ever heard of Passover? Well, this is where it came from, right here. Passover, because on the end of the plagues, God was sparing life. Ten plagues of biblical proportions. Now, some study these, and they try to explain how these quote, signs could happen. Do they have any natural phenomena that could 
help us understand that would have been possible in ancient Egypt. And in fact, they say there, there was. Like torrential rains in Ethiopia could have sent red clay blood into the Nile that would have stained and saturated all of the Nile River, giving it this blood-like appearance, which would have killed the fish that were in the Nile. This is the way the explanation goes. And those fish contracting anthrax, or the disease that poisons the water, then the frogs that were in the river then get the clue that they need to get out of the river and head for cooler environments. So they get out of the river, they go to the homes where they then die because they're already infected with anthrax. And then when they die, that diseased death creates um, lice. And flies, or these flying bugs, which then causes the death of cattle and results in human disease. We've heard about human diseases that come from animal diseases. And then that second set of meteorological disasters, hailstones, storms, hailstones, hailstorms, and then locusts may have been followed by something that's familiar, a Libyan dust storm which even if it happens in the middle at high noon can make it feel like you're in the middle of the night. This is what some say, attempting to offer a plausible explanation for the signs that we've just read. Now, Scripture focuses more on the why, okay, the why than the how. So what was the why? Well, Exodus 9, verse 14, the Lord tells Moses to tell Pharaoh What are those words again? Let my people go, or I will send the full force of my plagues against you, your officials, your people, so that you may know that there's no one like me in all the earth. And by now, it's like God gives a a side, like, hey, by now, I could have stretched out my hand. I could have struck you and your people with plagues that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. I want you to see what a real God can do. And then chapter 12, verse 12, I will bring judgment. Here's the bottom line. What was this? This was not an epic showdown between Pharaoh and Moses. Remember, this was a battle of the gods. I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. Okay, so why these 10? Well, scholars also say that this was strategically done to expose the falseness of the so-called gods that the Egyptians were actually worshiping at the time. Pharaoh and his people would now have a front row seat at the match as the impotence of their gods, as the weakness of their gods was now on display. And so what I want to do is just track the plagues again, and I'll show you what archaeological finds have discovered about these 10 types of incidents. The first was uh, happy H-A-P-I, the god of the Nile, who was now this worshipped as the god of the Nile River and yet was unable to stop whatever this blood infusion was that then polluted the river. Number two, Haket, the god of fertility, has the head of a what? 
That's the head of a frog. And yet the frog god that they worshiped couldn't keep the frogs in the river out of their beds. This is what they were seeing. Okay, you worship that god. Is it strong enough to, when you need it, to come through? Number three, Geb, the god of the earth. But the earth's dust now, the god of dirt, the god of the earth, the earth's dust now touched by the, um, the staff of Aaron is, uh, is turned to gnats. And it, you know, like no seums, they're everywhere. And you're like, get them off of me. Where do they, you know, they're just everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. But the God of the earth can't stop the dirt from turning into these. See what's happening? Kepri, the God of renewal, symbolized by a scarab beetle. The beetle was considered sacred to the ancient Egyptians. And yet now you've got these swarming flying bugs everywhere, you know, trying to swallow the, and their, their flying bug God can't stop the bugs from flying. See what he, what's happening here? Hathor, goddess of maternity, symbolized in a cow, in that the God, goddess of maternity can't protect their own livestock. Yahweh God steps up again, takes on the next one in the stack. Amen. God of the air. And you could put the goddess of medicine into here as well, because as they toss the soot into the air, and then it spreads in these boils, festering boils on people and animals. But the Egyptian God of medicine and the Egyptian God of air can't stop it, can't undo it, can't Number seven, looks like nut, doesn't it? Like found a peanut, found a, no. This is int, int, the God of the sky, and yet unable to provide a force field to stop the hail from coming down and destroying. Seth or Setch, the God of evil, chaos, storm, mayhem, now unleashed and overpowered, overpowered by the locusts that are eating everything in the aftermath of the hail. And then Ra, or the sun god, Ray. We, we know the Egyptians are famous for worshiping the sun, but darkened for three days and can't turn the lights on. And then number 10, Osiris, which would be the god of the underworld. They had a highly developed cultural thought process for the underworld. You know, what happens in the afterlife, mummies and all of that. And yet Osiris can't stop the people from dying and can't bring anybody back from death. And then there's Pharaoh, Pharaoh himself, who was, his brand was, I'm the man god. I'm the man god. And yet he couldn't bring life to his own son. This is how the story runs. So what's going on here? God said, I'm gonna bring judgment on the gods. Let's let the gods that they give themselves to step into the ring with me and let's see who's standing at the end of the day. This is battle of the gods and it has engaged and it has now come to conclusive end. The so-called gods of Egypt are nothing when the mighty God of Israel steps up in truth to do justice and then to set his people free. Now, lawyers and judges are familiar with this phrase, arbitrary and capricious. Arbitrary and capricious. It means that something willy-nilly is happening for um, 
But this is not the God of the Hebrews. This wasn't just a smattering of plagues that God gets ticked off about something and says, oh yeah? No, this is a strategic ordering of the very gods that gave meaning and definition to the life of the culture. And he's saying, I'm greater. I'm the true God. This is a profound and unique line of thought in world history, anthropology, world history, world civilization. You've studied that, many of you. This is the one God revealing himself to and through the Hebrews is not like the gods of polytheism that are found in virtually every culture in history. He is not a tribal deity or kind of the the mascot, you know, from the area, the local mascot god who is there to support the local team and their culture. The God of the Hebrews claims to be the one true and living God of all. He's creator God of the universe. He's the maker of covenants. He's the keeper of promises. He does justice, and he sets his people free, and he exposes false gods and their lies, and he holds nations accountable. That's this story. Even though he's seemingly been silent for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, he is not absent. And he has not forgotten his promises to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the people of Israel. It's like almighty, infinite God beyond time looks at his watch and says, well, it is time. And he shows up to draw his people out that he might draw them in because there is a larger plan afoot in bringing us into his promise. Now, maybe today you look at these plague stories and it just sounds to you like a Grimm's fairy tale, you know? This is just like the underbelly dark side of fairy tales. And you're tempted just to write the whole thing off as make-believe. You know, it's an interesting story, makes for a good movie, nice special effects but it's just make-believe. I really want to challenge you to think to another way of thinking about it. I mean, uh, before you let your heart get hard, even if, and I'm not saying that they are, but, but even if these signs and miracles have the sense of poetry wrapped around their theology, Here's the question, are we still smart enough, are you still smart enough and open enough to learn a lesson from a poetic fairy tale? What is it teaching? What is it trying to teach? Now I'm asking that because some people come to certain parts of the Bible and then they immediately, they, they discount that part and then they throw the whole thing out as if it's irrelevant. And in the process, it's just a book of superstition and fairy tales and, and make-believe, and they miss the message and then throw out the baby with the bathwater. So I'm just saying, even if you're wanting to say, well, it's fairy tale, you smart enough to learn from a fairy tale? Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses, all the king's men couldn't put him back together again. That isn't about an egg, is it? That's about human culture that takes a crash and then finds out that 
they don't have what it takes to put it back together again. There's a lesson there. Are, are we willing to listen to the lesson here? Rather than throw the baby out with the bathwater, and I'd caution you not to do that, archaeological evidence validates the historicity, pieces of historicity in this story. I just showed you the evidence on screen. Of these 10 false gods in that ancient culture being confronted, the pantheon of gods being confronted. And I gotta tell you, this is a pre-scientific book. This book isn't, wasn't written to be a scientific treatise on what can or cannot happen according to the laws of physics in the natural order of things. In fact, part of what the story's trying to show us is that God exists beyond the natural order, that God creates nature, and that he can tell it to do whatever he wants it to do when he wants to. And so it's, it will serve his purpose. So there's a lesson there if we're open to hearing it. By the way, if you want to investigate the rational, logical journey of a highly educated thinker and a former atheist who just believed there were no such things as miracles, but he worked his way through what miracles are, how they happen, when they happen, why they happen, why does God do them, I would recommend to you the book by C.S. Lewis, Oxford University Don, simply entitled Miracles. So if you want to seek and see if you find anything, that might be a good place to go. But here's another lesson. How hearts go hard, how human hearts go hard. You know, all through the rollout of justice, the steamroller of justice is coming here, and as the battle of the gods is underway, Pharaoh, who sees himself as the man, the man God, is experiencing a hardening of the harteries that we're not even sure he's fully aware of. Something's happening to him. In his stubborn resistance, Pharaoh chooses resistance, and then God lets him have more of what he chose. God just underlines that. He just says, oh, that's your handwriting? Then let me just cover, I'll just trace right over it. I don't believe, and his heart just gets harder and harder, I do not personally believe that God pre-selected him to be hard, but Pharaoh chose to resist. I'll show you that in just a moment. The scripture says this, God wants all people to be saved, to come to a knowledge of the truth. God doesn't want anybody to get hard and lose them. That's Paul. What does Peter say? Peter says, God's not willing that any should perish. God doesn't want any to be lost. God wants all, that includes you, to come to repentance. What does repentance mean? It means the change of heart. So that you're not taken out by hardness. Okay, well if that's the truth, then how does anybody, how does Pharaoh or anybody seem to be so strong-willed against God even when it seems contrary to reason and good judgment? How does that happen? Well, my belief is that Pharaoh first made his own heart hard, and then God simply confirmed the position he had taken. Pharaoh set the trajectory of his life to be in opposition to the true and living God. And then God underlined it. Ten times in the story, the hardening of heart is ascribed to God, who God foreknew God foretold, you'd expect the true God to know that, right? And then God did effect some of that hardness. 
Why? Who is it that gives any of your choices the power of consequence? Your creator does. They're saying that's true here. And then, so Pharaoh makes his own decision, but on the other hand, it says that every time, just as often, just as often, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. It was as much his own act as the decree of God who underlined it. And here's what the New Testament says. Romans chapter two, God's kindness, which means his forbearance, his patience, when it seems like sometimes God's not around, you know, he doesn't immediately thump you when you do something wrong, but he gives you space to grow and, and learn, and that God's kindness, God's patience is intended to lead us to a change of heart, to repentance. And that's why he waits. That's why it feels like sometimes God's not around, God's silent, what's going on? He's waiting for you to make a choice, to turn. Verse five, but because of your stubbornness, hardness, and unrepentant heart, that's a hardness at the heart of you, then you are storing up wrath against yourself. What? Yeah, this is what's really gonna happen for the day of God's wrath. I thought God's wrath, you know, you're afraid of God's wrath. No, he's saying all God's gonna give you on that day is the wrath you've been storing up by your own choices. When his righteous judgment will be revealed, God is a justice God and he will do justice. And when it comes, this is what the New Testament says, he will repay each person according to what they have done. A day of accountability is coming and God will do justice in his world, even though it seems like he's been absent for a while and he's been silent. But when the day of justice comes, God will say, up, oh, time's up. And the, all the false gods will be exposed and all the lies will be found out. Now, why 10? Why the number 10? Why 10 plagues? Well, scholars say that the Bible, 10 is the number of completeness in the Bible. Well, you know, like 10 commandments, 10 plagues. What does that mean? It means Egypt has been completely plagued out. They've run the course of their gods. Their false gods have been completely exposed and embarrassed in the field of conflict. And the false gods couldn't come through in the end, and now everybody can see it if they're paying attention, if they're not blind and hard. But they don't have the capacity, the gods don't, and people still resist with hardened hearts. So here's a place where we need to ask a very serious question. What are you treating as a god in your life if a God is whatever you gain your identity from, you turn to for security or for meaning, if a God is that which you elevate, you revere it to the point that you're willing to sacrifice for it, time, money, whatever it takes, you're gonna show up for, what are you treating as a God in your life? What would your gods be? Now, probably not those bugs of ancient Egypt, right? No, it's gonna maybe look something like, like what my gods would be. Like what? Well, like career. Live for that. Education. Got to spend a lot of money to get that. Pleasure, beauty, family, religion, sports. Get up to live for sports, politics, science, sex. I mean, we got a garden of the gods before us. Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit God, simply says this. Today in Western culture, idolatry is usually quote, a good thing that is taken too far. 
So what Dr. Keller is saying is that these aren't bad things in and of themselves. They're good things, gifts from God. But when you promote a good thing into a God thing, how can you tell you've done that? Well, it starts controlling your behavior, and it starts consuming your mind. You think about it all the time, and you order your life so that it can happen. You treat it like a God. He's saying good things taken too far in the absence of the one true God will be found out. Now, in secular culture, which our culture is just rife with secularism. You know, they had many gods. We think it's popular to not have any gods. Secularism would just be our own God. But there were two big ones in our culture today that I've observed. Maybe you wondered why they're not on the earlier list. I saved them for now. One is money, and the other is self. Many worship these. People will do just about anything for money. And there's a reason that it's called the almighty dollar. <laughs> because we think, man, money's just going to solve all my problems. <laughs> Amen. You got that right. <laughs> but some people think it is, and that's why they spend all their health to get more money, and then they wind up having to spend all their money to try to get their health back. And then self. Pharaoh, man, this man was full of himself, wasn't he? He was self-centered, he was self-absorbed, he was self-focused. <laughs> it was all about the man. He was the man God, and, and so are we. We don't even have to try, do we? It's like it's so easy to go there. Did you know there's even a book today entitled Homo Deus? That's Latin for man God. Came out in 2016. The author uses that term to refer, to refer to the species that's going to come after Homo sapiens. This is not a joke. You know, sometimes I think that we've advanced, and then I look at where we are. It's not so far from an ancient civilization that was eaten up and taken slaves in their own minds before they started abusing other people. And God said, I'm only going to tolerate that for so long. And then he says, I'm, I will show up, and the truth will be seen, and justice will be done. So how are we supposed to get free and not suffer more from false gods and then our own stubbornness of heart. I think answering that question is the big reason why this story's in the Bible. Maybe the reason why God wanted you to hear the story today, because he wants you to get free. <laughs> this is why it matters for you right now. And we're going to get into even more of that next week, but for now, I've got three takeaways for us real quick. The first one is God wants you to know him as God capital G, true and living, one and only, the ancient of days, the God of history, the God of all nations, and all people will be accountable to him, and, but he cares about every person as he wants to do justice and set people free. That's the truth about God that we're supposed to learn from this story, I believe. The second truth is the truth about us. This is about that we find freedom and life in life by choosing God and his way. 
I think that's the story here too. Not by going our own way and acting as if we're God. That won't play well when, when you die, keep yourself alive, good luck. It's the truth about us that people are making choices today. Right now, people in this room are making choices, people online are making choices today that either respond to God's call like Moses did or harden their hearts like Pharaoh did. And I gotta ask, which are you? That's what we're supposed to take away from this story. What kind of choices am I making? And are they leading me to life or to hardness that will find me out? And then, what's the way to life and freedom? This is the final lesson. And the lesson of the story is get yourself under the blood of the lamb. (laughs) Right? On the doorpost of that house. The blood of the lamb, the one without defect. And the New Testament picks that up. The Gospel of John, first chapter, John the baptizer sees Jesus coming along and says, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You get under him, and God's death will pass over you in judgment and bring mercy to your life. Jesus Christ is our delivering God who saves us from the deceitfulness of the false gods and from the judgment of death. He is God's Passover lamb who, without defect, who took into himself everything it required as he sacrificed himself for us on that cross, and his blood over us now frees us by the grace and power of God. And as we trust him, here's what's gonna happen. He'll make baptism real for you. He will draw you out of death and take you into new life. So I'm thinking there may be one of three options as you're listening today. For some of us, it may be that you have been so close to Jesus and you have walked with him and followed him, and it, but you've been to church how many times and you've heard how many sermons, and it's like, you know how when you just use the same muscles all the time, your fingertips, your same, you can sort of get calluses? Sometimes you just get calluses because you're just used to whatever, and I'm wondering, maybe there's somebody here who's, maybe your heart isn't hard, but it's, it feels cold. It's been a while since you've really been warmed up by God. You look at other people and say, well, they're happy. I wonder why I'm not feeling that. Maybe this was for you because those calluses, you catch them early enough, God can bring refreshment before it goes hard. Well, that's the second group. Somebody may have listened and resisted and set the trajectory of your own life. You've heard how many sermons? And every time you just say, nope, not yet, not now, not me. And every time, God is just saying, really, really, really? And he just keeps on letting you, and it gets harder and harder, and then you don't realize you've got hardening of the harteries until the widow maker shows up. Don't be that guy. You've got to catch it early. And then the third one is this. You know, Jesus said that at the judgment, he's going to look at some of us, and he's going to say, I never knew you. You don't want to be that guy. You got religious, you followed a false god of religion, but you didn't know Jesus, come on. This is your moment, and I wanna say that all three of those options can be addressed by the same invitation of Jesus, where he said, listen, I'm standing at the door and I am knocking, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, then I will come in and we will have fellowship. 
You know, when he said that verse, he was standing outside the door of his own church trying to get in. You know, people go to church all the time and they don't experience God while they're there. Have you experienced God today? Then if, if the calluses are making you cold, then you can say, Lord, freshen my life up today. I'm, I heard your voice. <laughs> I want to be in this number. Or if you've realized that that hardness may be you and you, you don't, but it may, is it? Could it? And then you can, Jesus is saying, listen, if you hear me knocking, then open the door and I will come in. What you can't do for yourself, he does. He's the one who delivers us from hardness and death. We don't. And then finally, and perhaps this is for you, that you've realized that you're religious and you've been to church, but God hasn't come alive in your life. You'd know that. And Jesus says, today, if you hear my voice and open the door, then I will come in to you. So which are you, and would you pray with me now? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are our delivering solution, that you are the justice that we seek, that you are the mercy that we need, that you are the healer and the deliverer, and that you can soften our calluses. Sister, brother, is that you? need to release that grudge. You need to turn loose of that resentment. Would you let Jesus bring his mercy and love to that space right now? And you, Lord, are the one who can lift us from death, the death of hardness of heart, and change our hearts with a heart of flesh that brings new life. Is that you, brother, sister? And now you've realized today that you need God to do something for you that you can't do for yourself. And you'd say, Jesus, do it. Do it for me now. I'll trust you. And then maybe, friend, this is your day to meet Jesus, to open your heart to Jesus for the first time and let him be your friend. Let him love you with fresh power and the gift of salvation, the joy and the peace. If that's you, then would you pray with me right now? Lord Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you for coming for me. Thank you for going to the cross for me where your blood can deliver me that would cause death and judgment to pass over me. I invite you to come into my life as my Savior and now lead me to follow you as my Lord. Now our head's still bowed for a moment, but if you prayed that last prayer with me and would let me ask God's blessing upon your next steps forward in faith, would you simply lift your hand and hold it up for just a moment so that I can look around the room. If you're joining us online, please let us know right there. Thank you, I'm looking straight ahead here and I'm seeing one, two, three, four, five, six, seven hands, eight, nine, ten, God bless you, to my left, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, amen, to my right, thank you, Lord, 16, 17, 18, thank you, thank you, young lady, 
Lord Jesus, for each one of these who by uplifted hand has said, my heart is open to you and you are my Savior and Lord, I trust you for the forgiveness of my sins. May they feel the peace that passes human understanding and begin the walk in joy of your salvation as we make our prayer in your name. Amen.